Welcome to Working Gratitude, real people, real gratitude at work, with your host, Darren Hollingsworth, Chief Gratitude and Accountability Officer at Odonata Coaching and Consulting. Welcome to the very first episode of Season 3 of our podcast, Working Gratitude. Before I introduce my guest today, and I am very excited for you to hear from her, I need to take a pause. We are recording this on Friday, March the 13th, 2020. It will be released sometime next week. And there is so much happening in our world and our country and our local communities and for each of us personally. Facing a world health crisis and pandemic with the virus COVID-19 and the rippling effect that that will have in our economy, our work and our personal lives. Believe me, I've been working to continue my gratitude practice. And I have to tell you, it's hard. That's why I call it a practice. It is definitely something I want to continue to refine in my life. That being said, I've been asked by friends and family and on social media, how can we keep this up in such difficult times? First, I don't live in denial of the difficulties facing so many friends and colleagues and people I don't even know. Even just recently in Nashville and Middle Tennessee, we had horrible, very destructive tornadoes. And it's a hard time mentally and emotionally for for so many of us. I want to be clear, I am not grateful for these tragedies. What I can tell you, though, is that when I practice gratitude, even for the small things in my life, I can start to shift, to open my eyes, my mind, and my heart to finding and sharing hope, even in the midst of tragedy. Today, as this crisis continues, and next week as this episode is published, please know, if you are listening to this then or at some later date, you are not alone. A website and social media feed that I follow regularly called A Network for Grateful Living shared this quote today. It is a huge danger to pretend that awful things do not happen, but you need enough hope to keep going. I am trying to make hope. Flowers grow out of darkness. End quote. Carita Kent, a Roman Catholic sister, artist, designer, and educator. I hope that you know that I hold hope and gratitude with you and for you. I hope this podcast gives you comfort, encouragement, and inspiration to keep your practice working gratitude. Thank you very much for listening. Now, today I have a very special guest that I am so excited to introduce you to. Some of you will know her very well. I only got acquainted with her a bit over a year ago when I moved to her hometown of Jackson, Tennessee. She is Lolo, known to many friends and family as Lauren Pritchard. She is a Grammy-nominated Broadway performer, theater writer and lyricist, songwriter, collaborator, community supporter, and activist, and all-around amazing human. I could geek out all day on her amazing bio and credits, but I want you to get to know her sooner than later. Lolo, welcome, and thank you for joining me today on Working Gratitude. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for that intro. That's so sweet of you. Yeah, I really could. You know, we've talked, we've had the opportunity to talk some here in Jackson at various music events uh, where you've performed or just been attending in support of others. And I know that you have a grateful heart. 
your music shares some of that too. So I want you to share a summary of your story for our listeners to hear uh, that directly from you and your words, because your words and your music say so much more than I can. And then we will work some gratitude if that's okay. So, (laughs) so if it's a good place to start in your bio, um, Broadway's since we're really mindful today of our colleagues who are so challenged and not able to perform for the next month or so. Okay, let's start there. I think that's a good place to start. Um, You know, I guess probably the best way to sum me up in a nutshell and my story up in a nutshell is I am a girl who loves to write. I've been that way since I was very small. I started writing things and writing ideas and thoughts and feelings down when I was about nine years old, eight, nine years old, that around then. And I had, you know, my ideas obviously when I was eight and nine years old were certainly much simpler than they are now. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved to create and um, I would write little one act plays and I would write music and I would... um, I would just create stories. I love stories and I've always been fascinated by storytelling and I always wanted to tell my own stories and the things that were swirling around my own head. And And then as I got older and I started to recognize that the people, the creative people that I admired and looked up to and loved, when I started to realize, oh, this is what they do for a living, that was sort of when that really clicked for me, that was in early like high school, like freshman year of high school age. And that was kind of, that was like the beginning of the end, you could say, where I decided this is what I want to do no matter what. (laughs) Great. And um, so that's kind of the best way to kind of sum up where my journey began, but also where my journey really still is. I think that it's amazing to have success and I'm so grateful for all of the things that have happened in my life and in my career, but there's so much more to do always. And I have such a yearning and a desire to always continue to do and grow and learn and shape. And so really, you know, fundamentally at my core, I'm still just, you know, a little girl wanting to tell my stories. Um, but Broadway was a huge, Broadway was a huge part of that. And how do you get from, how do you get from Jackson, Tennessee to Broadway and share with our listeners that, that show and that character. And you, maybe I interrupted you and you're going to do that, but I'm so excited to hear this because we, I haven't, (laughs) I haven't pieced all the pieces or the timeline together. So, well, I mean, I think like, I think the best way to say this without sounding uh, this also isn't like a jab at Jackson, Tennessee but you know if you want to do something and it's really specific like Broadway there's only one place that happens and if you don't put yourself in the physical place where those opportunities can happen they won't (laughs) right? That makes sense, yeah Like you can be anywhere literally anywhere in the world not just in america but you could be anywhere in the world and your desire is to go to broadway if your desire is great enough and that's really what you want to do you quite literally have to physically put yourself in the place where that can be possible the only place where broadway happens is new york city so while it is uh, a very daunting thing to move to new york city (laughs) um 
And I don't think it's a small feat for anyone, whether you have a lot of support and a lot of money or no support and no money. It's really difficult either way because it's a it that city is amazing and it's a lot to take on, uh, even in the best case scenario. So um, but you 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 know, you do have to put yourself there where the opportunity happens. My story is a little bit different. I. I started singing on stage when I was like six years old. I was really small. I knew I wanted to sing. Now, was this I knew so? I was to... that solo performance, Lauren, or was that uh, like theatrical stage performances? It was a little bit of everything. Like I knew that I wanted to perform, and I knew I wanted to create, and I knew I wanted to do both of those things. I really looked up to people like, um, you know, Judy Garland and Shirley MacLaine and and Barbara Streisand and um, these these people who were singers, but they were also performers and they didn't just do one kind of performing, you know, they weren't, um, they weren't, I loved Rosemary Clooney, like she was kind of my favorite. She, I loved the movie White Christmas growing up and I loved that you could dance and sing and act and that you were not limited in, in what your creative potential was, you know? So I'm, I was really interested in that from the time I was very small. I'm smiling at, because that was my dad's favorite movie. Uh, he absolutely loved Rosemary Clooney. Um, She's, she was amazing. Well, and, and all of these voice. people that you're talking about are at least a, almost a generation or more uh, before you were coming into your own music. I, I just love that. That's exciting to, to well, hear that I, part of your journey. I was kind of what I grew, grew up watching, though. You know, my my all of my family really, they loved the arts. So there was a huge appreciation for the arts and just there was a huge value in artistic things put in our family. And I think that that's true for a lot of people, but it really, it was very, very important to my parents and my grandparents and, and, um, and I was really surrounded with that. And so, you know, from the time I was young, I started singing on stage. I was in a choir. I would do a play. I would do a ballet. I would do, I would sing in a talent competition, which would just be me, you know, singing Mm -hmm, on stage. mm -hmm. Like I, I wanted to, perform and experience performance art any way I could because it was so much fun. It still is so much fun and it brings me so much joy. So I wanted to do that any way I possibly could. And because I was, you know, like a hyperactive child, my parents were like, great, the more she does, the more energy she gets out, you know, like, so they were very, were very happy to let me go and do it. And, um, so the basis of, where my desire to be on stage and want to do that kind of thing came from was just a genuine desire to want to do it because I loved the joy of it. It was so much fun. And um, when I was nine, I started doing professional theater in Nashville. And so I was was your first show. It was a Christmas Carol in Nashville. And I did it at the Roy A. Cuff Theater, which used to be next door to the Grand Ole Opry. It's not even there anymore. But then this was when Opryland was still a park. Right. I Hear America Singing um, was in that theater at one time. There was a show called I Hear America Singing there. Yep. Yep. Totally. So this was, you know, quite some time ago. And I 
I knew that that stuff was going on and I begged my parents, please, 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 please. I really want to go do this. And, and so they did. My parents let me go up there and audition. Um, I think mostly just to kind of see what would happen. And then I got cast in it and they were like, Oh, okay. You know, now we've (laughs) got to do this. So, and they were, I had, I have really amazing parents who were really supportive and could see my genuine desire. Um, I wasn't wishy washy about any of that. Um, so I was very focused from the time I was really young on doing that. And I was able to, through the combination of support that I had with my family unit and my own just sort of genuine belief and desire (laughs) go forth. After, especially after doing my first professional show, I remember looking at my mom and saying, I want to grow up and be in a Broadway show. And my mom was like, okay. Not that she doubted me, but there's, there's certainly a long road between where, between then and actually getting there one day. Um, and after that, we actually did go to New York when I was quite young, like 9, 10, 11 years old, and take meetings with agents and nearly signed with a few agents who really wanted to sign me and have me start auditioning and, and doing all of that right away. Mm-hmm. And my mom made an executive decision to not do it. And I'm, I've always been really grateful for that because I think that it gave us an opportunity. You know, we would have had to move up there. It would have been life altering in so many ways. And we were able to, have our childhood back in Tennessee and it was so wonderful and I was still able to perform down here and grow and learn and shape down here. Right. And I think that that was very important. I mean, who knows what could have happened in New York and I'm sure it would have been wonderful too, but it would have been a very, very, very different childhood. So, and, so fast forward a little bit with us then, and I have to get to the big show. <laughs> so we fast forward to, I was 17 years old. I had moved to Los Angeles. I had started songwriting at that point. I had begged my parents to let me move to California junior year when I was 16. They did. And I was ultimately there for two years. I lived there and, and worked there. I was mostly songwriting and, um, and, performing and trying to get that off the ground there in LA because really what I wanted to do at that point was songwrite. Mm. I still wanted to be on stage, but that was really at that point where my, my head was at and the songwriting community in, in Los Angeles has always been kind of the forefront where a lot of things happen. So anyway, I was going on auditions because acting was always a thing that I had done. I had booked a few commercials and I had done some stuff like that. So I was, auditioning regularly with the agent I had in LA at the time. And they sent me on an audition in LA um, because they did a nationwide casting search for spring awakening. They went to Denver. They went to Miami. They went to Chicago. They went to, I don't really know that they came to the South other than Dallas. I don't think they came to Nashville or anything like that. Um, But they went to many cities in the United States looking for kids for spring awakening. So I have to, Um, I have to pause there and let our listeners hear that a second time. That's, that's the second time you've said it. And I just, again, can geek out on this, but we're talking about the original Broadway cast of spring awakening 
right? Mm-hmm. The yeah. eight eight Tony nominated Spring Awakening. Okay, pick up there where you left off. <laughs> so we we were they were doing auditions all over the U.S. Because um, if you don't know anything about the show, it was. It is 11 kids on a stage. And when I say kids, I mean teenagers. So it's 11 teenagers on stage and two adults. So they wanted to cast a wide net because they wanted to, um, you know, I think sort of mix up what the resources could be based on just what they had in New York. So I went on the audition in L.A. It was it was a very quick audition. I didn't hear anything for two months. And then I got a call for my agent saying, um, can you fly to New York for a final callback? And it was, and I said, sure. That was at Thanksgiving. <laughs> this was, that was Thanksgiving of 05. And then, um, the week before Christmas in 2005, I went to New York for the final callbacks. And, um, it was a crazy, it was like three days. You met with like the music director people and went over, did, there was all this prep work. And then, the day of the final callback was like a really long eight hour day. And at the end of the day, they pulled me into a side room and they told me I had gotten the part. I, I, uh, I was the original Ilsa. I originated the role of Ilsa in spring awakening. And she is this, um, she's such an interesting character because in the story, she could almost be a ghost kind of guiding Mm. and shaping the story. She, you see her, she's the only character throughout the story where in the first act you see her in the past, um, how she pops into the show. And then when you um, see her in the second act, we pick up on where her life is currently. Mm. So, um, and her, her story involves some heartbreak. She's abused as a child. So she runs away from home and she's she's sexually abused at, in her home as a child i guess i should clarify and then she, so she runs away from home to escape that and then she is um in kind of like an artist colony where she's just trying to kind of make her own way cuz she's on her own and that is also a very imbu- abusive environment and so she decides to go home and on her way home she runs into an old friend from school um, and then it just kind of carries on from there. And there's the the Spring Awakening story is full of so much realness, which means there's a lot of joy and a lot of heartbreak. Well, that, I remember so, when it when it um, won all of those Tonys, it that was that was definitely cutting edge in terms of realness for Broadway. It wasn't fluffy Broadway. It was very real, and particularly for that age group. So, totally. Uh, I mean, when I think about it now, and I see what's going on on stage, we. We changed a lot perspective wise. So there's so much that happens now in theater because Spring Awakening made the way absolutely um, for those shows in the same way that Rent made the way for us, you know, several years before we came to be. Um, But in some ways, Spring Awakening is still singular in the way that it pushed boundaries. I Um, would agree. I would agree. And, you know, it was interesting going through the experience because there were a lot of reactions to the show. We had as much support as we did backlash. Sure. And, you know, and I believe the backlash. Yeah. Well, it wasn't even necessarily that we were kids. It's like when you do something that makes people really feel things or be confronted with their feelings, their lives, the things that they've been through or the things that they've done to someone else or the things that they've experienced that they, those things that kind of like can give you PTSD or, or, 
you know, whatever, the similar type feelings and you push them to the back of your mind, mm -hmm. when you see something, especially art related, that really evokes those feelings out of you, you, you get one of two reactions. You see it and you go, oh my God, I understand this. I love this. I'm all in. Or, oh my God, I know that. I hate this feeling. Get me out of here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so we saw a lot of very drastic reactions and it was a big learning experience about gratitude as well of being grateful for the experience, being grateful for the support, but also being grateful to be challenged mm. and understand that you're not always going to be in alignment with everyone and everything. And it is impossible to be everyone's cup of tea. Correct. But if you can be grateful for both sides of the challenge. I think that's a way to kind of move gracefully through it without trying to alienate or disrupt people more than what you're already doing. Because, you know, the show is not supposed to um, be a negative thing. It's supposed to shed a positive light in a real way, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So anyway. Well, I think it's so timely. The topic, you know, is timeless, really, because think of what we're dealing with today, off stage and in the Broadway community, and and we've got challenges, and you have to be able to see the darkness and the light of the challenge, and be able to acknowledge that some people are experiencing it differently, and some people are having it having positive reactions to certain aspects of it and some negative and some just can't even deal with it. So I think the show helps that. And, and I want to fast forward again, then if we can to bring our listeners into the current time frame with the stops along the way, the major stops along the way of your work with panic at the disco and a Grammy nomination and, and the songs that will be familiar. I wish we could, I wish I had all the licenses to play beds of music of, of some of your great songs, but I'm going to put in the show notes, I'll be putting uh, all sorts of links to one of my favorite videos of yours that to me is very current. And maybe, maybe I want to start there if we can. I love shine. You have sang that, and I've heard you sing it in so many different ways, almost acoustically and just so beautifully, um, and it tells so much of your story. Um, weave that into a quick um, conversation for our listeners of how that came to be and some of the steps along the way to get you there. Well, Shine, you know, every journey has its other. And Shine, for me, I wrote when I was... I'm a person that has a lot of anxiety and mm. I struggle with anxiety induced depression. Right. So my, basically, you know, my anxiety will get so out of hand that I will freak myself completely out and then I will be debilitated by my anxiety and I will not be able to do anything. And then by my inability to do anything, I will then become depressed and then I will be able to not do anything even further. Right. <laughs> it's a wonderful cycle. Whenever We I get share it. And, a journey with depression and anxiety, my friend. We share that. Journey. Well, and most most people struggle with some form of that. You know, I certainly, I've never thought that I am singular in my journey. Um, but I have tried to find ways to conquer it or rise above it as much as I can. It certainly has gotten easier over time, but it's a monster that I will always live with. Right. Um, but specifically at the time when I wrote shine and, and really my constant feeling about that song is, you know, you are the only person who can help yourself at the end of the day 
or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I am the only person who can help myself at the end of the day. And that's how it is for every person. We're the only person that can be in touch with our brain, know what we need, know how we feel, know where we're at. And if we're not listening to ourselves and taking care of ourselves as the, as the main priority, because if you are not caring for yourself, you correctly, you can't care for others correctly. Right. So when you're not listening to yourself and when you're not tending to your own needs, it's impossible to be able to do that for other people. And I, I say it this way. Get... I say that you cannot overflow into the lives of other people, even if you're an optimist with a half full cup. That's no, not a, that's not, not going to overflow. You have to Mm-mm. keep yourself full. And I call that right. self full. And, and some people will challenge me that, well, is that very self-interested and self uh, selfish? No, I, there's I, a huge difference. Absolutely. It's very self-aware. There's a huge difference. Because if you're if you're caring for yourself and you're giving yourself the resources you need to be your best human so that you can be a contributing member of society in the best way you can, that is only the good thing, right? That's only ever good. I certainly think there are ways to be self-centered and self-interested, and I think that um, sometimes it can be a slippery slope for sure. some people. Sure, sure. But, you know, I think it really also depends on where your heart is at and what your goals are. Absolutely. You know, I think that fundamentally, if your goal is to make the world a better place and that's where your alignment is and that's where your heart and your mind are centered, then everything you're going to be doing is focused on that. And ultimately, that's good. But if your interest is like self-climbing and self-gain and not gain in a way of helping you to help others and help what's around you gain all at the same time, then that's where the self-interest comes in and that sucks. Absolutely. But, you know, the, the point of a song like shine is, um, to remind, really it was to remind myself, you are your own bright light and no one else will have a light like yours. And mm-hmm. this is true for every person. Um, and I, I preach this pretty, pretty endlessly as I tour and as I talk and as I perform, we each have our own thing to give. No one person is the same as another. And if you are not tending to your light and to your goodness, you are not going to be able to be what you need to be for the rest of the world. And your light will not be shared. You will be limited And you have to remember that you are as bright as someone else. Not brighter, not better, but equal. Right. And your light is as equal and as valuable and as important as someone else's. But it's up to each of us to remember that, especially in the darkness and in the dark times when things are, when things do not seem bright and do not seem good, you know? You know, and I know that you believe this and, and, you create community around you that I think shares light when you have it and you're able to find light when you know you need it because you are self-aware enough that you surround yourself with people. You've talked about your family. You've talked, I know some of your friends and, and I believe that, that those of us who share in this conversation have something to offer each other and 
offer people outside of, of both this conversation on a podcast, but also in the work that we can do in the community. There is so much I would love to talk with you about. We may have to get you on for another episode because I, I want <laughs> to talk with you more about what's coming up. But give our listeners the snapshot of what's going on for you today and uh, maybe of all the things we've talked about or maybe something we haven't yet talked about, what are you most grateful for today? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's a hard <laughs> question to get in, in in the last few minutes, isn't it? I'm grateful for, um, I'm grateful for a lot at the moment. I'm grateful for my health more than anything. Mm. And I'm grateful for the support that I have. And I don't mean, uh, I don't just mean like the support that I've had from people in my career. I am so grateful for the support that I have in the person that I'm choosing to be Mm -hmm. the person I've become. Um, and in the life I'm choosing to live, uh, I think that we all hope for validation in the things that we choose to do. And, when we feel like we don't have that validation, it's, it is debilitating. You know, it can keep us from doing so much. Yes, so is. I'm, I'm grateful that I have support from people who are as confident in who I am as I am about yeah. who I am. <laughs> it's a shared journey for you. And I see that in the people that you surround yourself with. Like I said, I think we need to have another conversation with you about some great projects that you have coming up in 2021 that you and I've talked about and some, maybe some great personal things that are happening in the coming weeks and months that um, yes. I'm very grateful to know about and be a part of your friend family. So I want to take a moment to thank you again for joining me, uh, Lolo. And I, I will, for our listeners, put several links to things that I think will help you get to know her better in the show notes. So if you're one of our regular subscribers and you've listened previously, first of all, thank you. And you have heard that I've done a bit of a departure from previous seasons of asking the very direct questions. What are you grateful for at work? What challenges have you faced that you are now grateful for? And how do you get involved in your community? And I'm mixing that up some for me because I've done over 70 of these interviews now and I wanted to engage guests in more of a conversation about what was real for them in the moment. And I want you to have a different perspective as well. So if you're a regular subscriber, thank you. If you're a new listener, I hope you'll subscribe, like, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts and share this podcast over the coming weeks and months. You're going to hear from other people in very different workplace environments. Uh, I'm thrilled to have had Lolo on today, who's both a neighbor now and a, a dear friend, but we'll hear from people all over the country in all sorts of different workplace environments. So I hope that the podcast continues to offer you insights and encouragement. I'll be sharing more of the research that supports uh, gratitude and gratitude in the workplace. And I look forward to hearing from you. Please interact with us on social media and let me hear from you at info at workinggratitude.com. Thank you again for joining us. Darren Hollingsworth has had a thriving career as a financial advisor, sales professional, senior fundraising professional, and nonprofit executive. 
Now, via business, success, and philanthropy coaching, Darren is passionate about helping successful executives realize and exceed their personal and professional potential. He helps business and nonprofit leaders find and confirm their passion, their inspiration, and motivation. This is accomplished through collaborative work based on gratitude, experience, encouragement, and accountability. As Darren says, surviving is not enough. Thriving is the goal. Additionally, Darren works with businesses, nonprofit organizations, and boards of directors to create new possibilities for transformational customer and donor relationships, organizational strategic visioning and governance, as well as continuity and succession planning. Via collaboration and consulting, Darren engages with clients to empower them to build upon strengths and face challenges with confidence and expertise. To hear more Working Gratitude and for information about Darren Hollingsworth and Odonata Coaching and Consulting, visit our website, odonatacoaching.com, or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Coaching or search wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to Working Gratitude. Working Gratitude, copyright Darren Hollingsworth and Odonata Coaching and Consulting, all rights reserved.